Good morning, and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of abridged public talks. I'm Carol Meng. Today, in episode four, we'll be studying a bit of history and looking into the story of China Engineers Limited, a seminal company in the early days of the Chinese textile industry. It was founded in 1928 in Hong Kong, with its main economic activity taking place in Shanghai. Up to 1936, China Engineers had been a crucial textile machinery provider to Chinese industrialists. But when the war against Japan started the next year, the company had to look for alternative activities to survive. Today, we'll be listening to a talk given recently by Professor Carlos Brazo Bogi from the Open University of Catalonia. Some of you may have read his book, Trade and Technology Networks in the Chinese Textile Industry. He is now revisiting the findings because of the appearance of new research, which is the diaries of the director and founder of China Engineers, William Charles Gomesol. Let's see what he found in the long lost diary entry by listening to his lecture organized by HKU, entitled "China Engineers Limited: A Hybrid Company in Wartime China, 1937 to 1945." Here I have to thank、uh, Elizabeth Gomersal, the doctor of、uh, Gomersal, who、uh, kindly showed me、uh, this source,、uh, which I, which we are actually working with nowadays. So this is something that I thought I had finished、uh, studying it, and now it has become a working progress again. But I think it's interesting because new evidences and new、uh, things are coming up with this、uh, source, which is the diary of Gomersal, where I am working.、Um, The company China Engineers、um, was a company of、uh, intermediate trade.、Uh, it was actually an importer of machinery, of、uh, textile machinery, to、uh, for Chinese companies. But in the 19,、uh, in the years of war,、uh, diversified its business, and this is what I'm going to talk uh, uh, today. So I will try to explain how the company transitioned from being a transnational company working in the sphere of the international concessions. Uh, until becoming a kind of a post-war Hong Kong-based multinational,、uh, doing、uh, diversified service operations.、Um, so, if, and, and if we move forward、uh, in the post-war period, we see how、uh, business activities of China engineers moved to Hong Kong in the late 1940s, and he would have been sources,、uh, especially in Hong Kong.、Um, even though、uh, the office of Shanghai was one of the last companies. Um, to uh, maintain business activities in the 1950s until 1956. This is、uh, the moment where、uh, all business、uh, private activities were、uh, controlled by the, by the Communist Party, and thus、uh, Shanghai office was detached from China Engineers as、uh, the main economic activity moved from Shanghai to Hong Kong.、Uh, however, China Engineers thrived in the 1950s in the trade、uh, in, in Hong Kong as an intermediate trader. Um, uh, until the passing away of William Charles Gomersal in 1960, and we will see that this company was heavily dependent on the personality of William Charles Gomersal. So when he passed away, the the, the the economic activity continued for a while, but finally China Engineers was sold to a Malayan group and、uh, disappeared from the scene. So this is a, a a brief overview of China Engineers, and now I would like to discuss、um, briefly also. Uh, about uh, why I consider China Engineers a hybrid. First of all, we need to、uh, understand the origins of William Charles Wong Gomersal, and this is also why this new source of his diaries appears to be important.、Uh, Gomersal was born in London in 1895 from a Chinese father, 
Fu Ho Wong, which was a tea merchant, and a British woman, Elizabeth Gomersal. And due to the racist rules of the British communities in China, throwing on uh, inter interracial marriages, especially between British women and Chinese men, Elizabeth gave birth in England and brought the young uh, boy an English education. Um, uh, and he studied uh, textile engineering uh, until he moved back to China in 1980. Uh, he worked for several other British companies until he founded China Engineers in 1928. So, if you take a look at the shareholders of China Engineers, we discover also a mix of British, Chinese, and other Asian, invest Asian investors. Uh, so, you can see um, William Charles Commerson in bold letters at the beginning, uh, the main shareholder. Uh, but then you see the hybrid character of this company. The second shareholder of uh, the company was the American Asiatic Underwriters. Uh, this is the company, the first company of Cornelius van der Star, which would later become AIG. But at that time, it was a small American company in Shanghai. Um, but then you can see a lot of uh, Chinese merchants, um, which also were shareholders of, of China engineers. We can see, for instance, the um, uh, James Xiong Li, Li Xu Xiong, and uh, Philip Li in the number uh, 15 and uh, 20 of the shareholder list. Uh, these were uh, brothers from a very wealthy Ningbo merchant family residing in Shanghai. Um, uh, Philip Lee, that you could see in bold letters, was nom nominated director, uh, office director of the Shanghai office, uh, while uh, James Xiong Li would become the director of China Engineers one, once Gong Marsal uh, died in 1960. Um, uh, and, 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 and then you, you, in bold letters, you see uh, Gong Marsal, uh, Philip Lee, and Eric Shaftesbury Elliston, which was also a member of the executive board who actually managed the office of Shanghai. So actually, the office of Shanghai was pretty balanced between an Eurasian director, William Gomersal, a British trader, uh, Eric, Eric Ellison, and a Chinese engineer, Philip Lee. Uh, besides this uh, presence of American, uh, British, Eurasian, and Chinese capital, you see also a small shareholders coming from South Asia, such as um, the, the, the last shareholder, uh, which came from uh, British India, uh, and also a member of the Tata family in the number 13, Legenda de Tata. Uh, so actually, um, this is why I called uh, this company a hybrid company, because maybe legally it was a British company, but um, uh, geographically actually it was a Chinese company because it did not have any presence in Britain. And sociologically it was clear a um, uh, company which was based from uh, this cosmopolitan society and, and transnational members from, from different places. Okay. What was the core business of China engineers? China engineers were importers of, uh, of machinery from Europe, mainly uh, to Chinese customers. Uh, so they were importing intermediate goods for the textile industry, uh, for the Chinese textile industry. They purchased uh, spindles from the UK, uh, looms from Switzerland, uh, dyes for the chemical industry, for the dyeing industry from Germany, uh, wool derivates from uh, Australia, and so on. And the main customers of uh, China uh, of China engineers were big textile industrial groups uh, of Chinese company. Let's say Dafeng from the uh, Wang Qi family, which we have seen uh, uh, in the shareholder list. Li Xin uh, from the Tang family of Wuxi. Shenxi, maybe the most famous one, from the Roll brothers from Wuxi. And Ba Cheng uh, from Changzhou, uh, owned by Liu Guqin. So uh, they purchased machinery in Europe and they imported it to China. And what was the competitive advantage of China engineers? 
So besides the familiarity of the Chinese networks, because we we see that they were that there were Chinese shareholders there, uh, China engineers had a competitive advantage in the payment terms of this machine. As you can see in the uh, contract uh, from uh, of China engineers to the Chinese company uh, Nishin, uh, signed in 1932, uh, that was a, a purchase order of uh, 16 looms. And the interesting thing here was the payment terms. So there's a lot of literature in the textile, uh, Chinese textile industry that has said that the, one of the most difficult things of uh, the development of Chinese industrialization was the lack of capital and the fact that, uh, you know, Chinese companies um, got dif had difficulties in finding capital and then in, uh, and uh, got involved in uh, uh, high interest loans and so on. No? So uh, when a Chinese company wanted to buy uh, machinery, uh, a very important thing was the payment terms. Uh, some companies, uh, like competitive companies of China engineers, uh, had uh, uh, demanded the Chinese customer to pay uh, a first installment after the signature of the contract that could be 15-20% of the machinery cost. And then uh, another installment at the arrival of goods at ports. And here in this contract of China engineers, we can see that uh, the payment terms is 15% uh, at the arrival of uh, goods at ports, so no payment when the signing of the contract. And then uh, an installment uh, structure of uh, after six months of the arrival of the ports, you find an, uh, installments of every six months. That was very, very uh, positive or very uh, advantageous for Chinese companies, but was also risky business for China. And it's something that during the war had a lot of, uh, a lot of consequences. Okay, besides this main, but uh, this is the, 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 the core business of China engineers and one of the competitive advantages of this company. Uh, besides that, uh, uh, the company also uh, displayed the services for uh, private companies, service fees for installing factories or to governments, to the Shanghai municipal government, to the Bimbo regional government, and other, uh, and other service for engineering services. According to this uh, newsletter of China Engineers 1934, the company ranked sixth in the market of engineering services in China. Besides the top companies, which were maybe Jardy, Matheson, engineering company, and so on. We can also find companies similar in this hybrid character I just mentioned to China engineers, such as the Arnhol company and other companies, which were, for instance, Arnhol was also run by the Sassoon family, which was all, which had also a kind of similar hybrid structure. So now we move to the uh, war period and we see how um, China engineers um, evolved from this uh, core business of uh, importing machineries to other sectors, especially in industry, in finance, and in trade. First of all, we will start in industry. So uh, when the uh, in summer 1937, when the battle of uh, between China and Japan started, uh, it entered Shanghai very quickly in the summer in August 1937. Uh, war clashed in the um, in the region of Shanghai. But it clashed especially in the region which was not administered, which was administered by the Chinese authorities, while the international concession uh, was kept neutral. Here we can find a map of the limits of the international concession. Uh, this is this part in the on the right hand side was the part of the international concession which remained neutral. And in the other part, you see the countries of uh, Baoshan, uh, Jabei, or Taojiadu, which uh, became uh, affected by the war. And in, in colors, you find textile mills. So the textile mills was, that stood inside the concessions uh, were uh, kept untouched. They were not uh, affected, but the ones that stayed out of the concessions received the, uh, the, the clash of war and the occupation of Japan. 
And here you have a literature, uh, we can see, uh, you know, uh, our global classic of uh, the Chinese um, uh, capitalism in Japan's new world, uh, that explain the fact that some of these companies that stayed out of the concessions um, uh, uh, raised uh, British and German flags to protect themselves against the uh, destruction of war and the Japanese occupation. Uh, and, and, but, uh, and this is um, uh, basically uh, studying uh, also other literature, uh, basically focusing on the Chinese companies in regards to the Japanese occupation or the Chinese government. But while we focus on these intermediaries like uh, China engineers, we see uh, 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 a more complex picture. Uh, which rises from the fact that uh, most of these companies had placed orders of machineries in 1936, which had not been paid back uh, because China engineers had this installment program. A lot of uh, mills that were still staying out of the concessions and were menaced, were threatened by the Japanese occupation uh, had machinery which had not been paid back to China engineers, and China engineers claim this debt. Okay, so as a result. Some of these uh, Chinese companies accepted that China engineers entered into the business of uh, of their running mills, and thus, uh, you know, this uh, uh, this economic rationality uh, explained uh, how some of these companies were actually purchased by China engineers, and thus British flags were raised, and thus China engineers uh, claimed for protection to the British uh, consulate against Japanese occupation. This happened to some of the mills, uh, and I've analyzed the case of China cattle mills in a previous uh, chapter. But uh, actually, China engineers uh, managed to run seven textile mills uh, in the international concession of Shanghai during this period. And so it, it did not limit to one company. It was extended to other Chinese companies, which became a kind of joint ventures between Chinese capital and uh, China engineers who entered this claiming for, for this. Okay. At the same time, in the international concession, and this is something that has been studied, uh, there was a boom of uh, textile production since the price of uh, textile goods skyrocketed. And so uh, all the uh, companies who were able to produce textile goods were selling at a high margin. Uh, this happened of, uh, on, on, on these uh, uh, mills, like China Cotton Mills, who uh, succeeded in uh, transporting part of the machineries inside the international concession and continued to produce. Uh, that created high margins, and in this way, these companies could also pay back, pay back the debt of the machineries that had been incurred uh, when they bought it at the beginning. Okay, uh, so actually, China engineers turned out to have uh, huge profits during this period, uh, and at the same time, uh, even though China, uh, Shanghai, the international concession of Shanghai was isolated from the rest of China, uh, Shanghai could still import machinery, so China engineers could keep with this core business of in, uh, uh, importing machinery. And because, you know, the, the, the price of goods had uh, been uh, skyrocketing, especially the, the, the price of uh, textile, uh, yarn, and clothes, the price of machinery also was raised. So actually, China engineers could also sell machineries to other companies uh, with a high profits. So uh, China engineers turned from being a, a machinery importer to entering the business of industry. But at the same time, uh, also it uh, expanded its business activities towards uh, inter-ASEAN trade. You're listening to Mind Matters. 
Professor Carlos Brasso Bogi told us how exactly China Engineers Limited operated, and why it was considered hybrid. Next, he'll explain how the company transformed into becoming a Hong Kong-based multinational. We see in the beginning that China Engineers only imported machineries uh, for Chinese customers uh, since the 1940s. Gomersal uh, created a new company with other South Asian uh, partners. Um, um, which uh, imported raw cotton from South uh, South Asia, especially British India, uh, because international concession had been isolated from the rest of China. And before the war, these uh, mills, a lot of these mills provided themselves from raw cotton from China. Uh, this raw cotton from China was uh, was not possible to to, to get anymore. So uh, Gomersal uh, created this company to import raw cotton. At the same time, uh, this. Uh, the uh, imports of raw cotton were uh, passing through Hong Kong, so Hong Kong became more important in the business activities of China engineers. So Commercial started to travel a lot between Shanghai and Hong Kong. Um, and it was at that time uh, that Commercial planned, and this is something that was also in line with the nationalist government guidelines, uh, which established that uh, textile companies were operating at the, at the international concessions had to, uh, per, uh, and wanted to purchase more machinery, had to pay uh, with foreign currencies obtained through exports. So uh, these companies started to see export markets for their cotton goods uh, in order to be able to have foreign currencies to buy um, to purchase machinery. So at this moment, Gomersal planned a visit to Southeast Asia, a visit that finally did not realize because of the clash of the uh, Pacific War. But other textile uh, industrialists, and it's interesting, something that uh, I think deserves more investigations sought a way uh, uh, to develop uh, that China's industries could develop by a means of export uh, exporting uh, finished goods, especially textile goods. And this is something that um, happened in Shanghai, in this isolated island of the international concessions, but also in Chongqing, uh, where uh, other, um, some of these international industrialists had also moved part of the machinery. At that time, also Chongqing was supplying uh, itself from uh, Burma and from Southeast Asia. So this opening of China to Southeast Asia at these years, just before the Pearl Harbor incident, I think is interesting and has not been um, uh, addressed. And I, I just quote here two articles that appear in textile journals, uh, one uh, of it claiming this opening of the Chinese companies to Southeast Asia, uh, another one of Li Guijin, which was a customer of China engineers, uh, who at that time moved between Chongqing, Hong Kong, and Shanghai and tried to um, export uh, goods to Southeast Asia. So we move uh, in another um, direction. So China engineers, you know, uh, evolved from being an importer of machinery to uh, entering the uh, industrial business, also involving in interest and trade, and finally also evolving in finance. Uh, when we see the contract of uh, China engineers to Li Xin of 1932, which was, you know, uh, how uh, China engineers uh, were, um, um, offered these installments, after the war, these installments also had a surcharge uh, on interest rates. So because the circumstances of war, China engineers just continued with this installment uh, uh, structure of contracts, but at the same time charging interest rates. But at, uh, also uh, Gomersal, and it's also, also something that has been appearing in diaries also uh, obtained loans uh, from British banks or Chinese companies. Not only Chinese companies, but also foreign companies like Swiss companies. Uh, and this is also very interesting because the Swiss companies uh, also helped Gomersal when Gomersal was detained in a uh, in a refugee camp in Hong Kong 
uh, after the Pearl Harbor incident, uh, because Swiss remained uh, neutral during the all, all, all of the conflict. Um, so, uh, Gomersal obtained um, uh, charged interest rates for uh, machinery importers after the war, uh, obtained loans uh, with that surcharge on the interest rate for uh, textile companies, and this is something we will also see when we analyze the China engineers' activities in the post-war period in Hong Kong, where Chinese engineers also intermediated between banks, Hong Kong banks, and Chinese uh, industrialists. Okay. And at the same time, China engineers also became an expert in asset valuation. All these companies uh, that had to square accounts every year, taking into account inflation, the depreciation of capital, and the market price of, of their machineries, uh, asked for China engineers for uh, consultancy. So they would go to the mills and they would check the uh, state of their machineries and also evaluated them. And that would have uh, also an impact on the, on the accounts of these companies. So actually, China engineers became a kind of financial consultant for a lot of uh, textile companies. And finally, some of these uh, companies also are looking at uh, increasing their capital to adapt it to the uh, inflation uh, and, uh, year after year. Uh, some of them, they also offered shares at the uh, Shanghai Stock Exchange. And this happened in, in the 1940s with uh, China Cotton Mills, but also to other mills like uh, Shanghai Worsted Mill and so on. And I have here some quotations of, of, of Gomersal itself from the diary, which states it's uh, this growing role of China engineers as, as a financier. Okay. So, um, for instance, in August 27, 1940, Gomersal wrote, uh, and I quote, business cycle has been remarkably successful. China engineers is only 11 years and is a powerful concern and is the focus of other important and rising enterprises. It can become a financing house to assist Chinese industry. End of quote. So, um, China engineers, uh, in these years had, uh, found, uh, profits from this, uh, diversification of its business activity. And now we move to the last stage of the, of the, of the, of the war when, uh, actually China engineers ceased production after the, the Harvard incident and the occupation of, uh, Japanese occupation of, uh, all the international concession first and afterwards of Hong Kong. Actually, and this is interesting because if we see 1936, when uh, Chinese companies were purchasing machinery, uh, I think they were not thinking that the war would, was imminent because otherwise they wouldn't have bought machinery. In 1941, he was traveling between Shanghai and Hong Kong quite often, uh, undertaking business with uh, Chinese uh, customers. In Hong Kong, he also met with uh, industrialists of Chongqing, that were willing to uh, buy uh, machineries for Chongqing, but the transportation of these machines from uh, Hong Kong uh, to Chongqing was out of reach because of logistics uh, impediments. Uh, but um, Gomersal was traveling between Shanghai and Hong Kong when the Pearl Harbor incident occurred. Uh, he stayed in a hotel uh, in Hong Kong, uh, separated from his family, uh, which stood uh, in Shanghai. And here is when Gomersal starts the second volume of his journal, which actually explains uh, to his wife, what is, well, to his wife, what is, uh, doing, what is he doing in Hong Kong at, at that, at that period? Um, Gomersal, uh, stays in the hotel while Japan occupies Hong Kong and he's taking, uh, taking in January 1942 in a, a refugee camp, in a camp in, uh, Stanley with, uh, 200 other civilians. He stays there with other business, businessmen that had been stuck in Hong Kong, uh, coming from Shanghai, like Eli Kaduri, which is also kind of, personage that uh, fits in this hybrid uh, companies that we are uh, analyzing. 
Uh, and then he uh, pressures the Swiss consulate uh, because he has been undertaking activities with the Swiss companies. So uh, the Swiss consulate can intermediate to uh, take him to Shanghai. Finally, this, uh, these relations or these contacts uh, uh, are successful and Gomersal uh, goes back uh, to Shanghai uh, in, uh, uh, in the summer of 1942. Then he, it's interesting because he's allowed to go to office. Uh, the office of China engineers uh, remains open, but the uh, business is, uh, is almost known. There is no business to do. So Gomersal just stays in his office uh, reading, uh, doing some gardening, doing some statistics until he finally is uh, requested or forced to go to the internment camp of Longhua. Uh, so he spends there uh, two years, the two last years of the Second World War, where he has this 50th anniversary and where he also meets other business communities, uh, uh, business transnational communities of Shanghai that had been stuck in this internment camp. So um, uh, this is the last stage of the, of the war where China engineers activity is very, very low. But uh, it's also um, uh, stands in contrast with the uh, industrial uh, concerns that had been previously uh, participated by China engineers. Uh, some of these uh, companies uh, regain activity in 1943. Um, you know, in, in, if they register in the association of the uh, textile owners, which uh, belong to the uh, occupied zone. Uh, this is an association that is run by the collaborationist government of uh, Wang Jingwei. And some of these companies actually re, uh, resume uh, um, industrial activity. But, uh, and, and it's interesting because if the uh, transnational, um, because uh, the transnational uh, character of uh, these companies were uh, acted as a protective shield in the first years of the, of the, the work in Japan, in this period, they, um, uh, to be able to resume production, they have to uh, strengthen their uh, Chinese uh, structure. So uh, they, these companies, or some of these companies, claim that more than 90% of their shareholder list are Chinese, so um, they forget about this um, uh, transnational um, side of there, and they are uh, allowed to uh, resume production, uh, even though this is a very at a very, very small scale. So you see that China Cotton Mills and other companies that have been purchased by China engineers resume production in this uh, period, but at 15, 20% of pre-war uh, production level. And it's interesting to see that uh, pre-war production level was attained at the international concessions in 38, 39, 40. Okay, if we see this uh, shareholder uh, meeting uh, of, of uh, China Cotton Mills in 1943, where transnational structure is not is, is, is hidden, uh, but they're claimed, or they, they try to receive production at a very small scale and also is scattering their machines uh, between the international concession and uh, the surrounding part of Shanghai. Uh, so this is something that um, I've been working for for some time, but now I'm trying to, if I focused on Chinese companies, now I want to focus on these intermediaries and see uh, how the importance, because, um, um, you know, a traditional economic literature tend to focus whether on Chinese companies or on foreign companies. And I think that there is a, 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 a important community of uh, in-betweeners or um, transnational community that did not belong to the categories that we are um, to make use. And, um, and, and and this is especially important or interesting in the shareholder structure uh, of China engineers where you see, uh, you know, an Eurasian, uh, but also other Asians, South Asians, uh, also Baghdadi Jews, 
also other Europeans uh, interests that you know intervenes in this in this moment of war, uh, which do not belong in the traditional uh, you know dichotomies, um, and these hybrid companies uh, in regards to their relation with the Chinese companies, um, you know during the war the the the, the ties that maybe were weak at the beginning, uh, strengthened it because of the circumstances of war and became strong ties at the end of it. Uh, and this is also something that China engineers, I think the example of China engineers uh, demonstrate. That was Professor Carlos Brazobodi from the Open University of Catalonia. I'm Carol Meng. Join me next Sunday morning for more Mind Matters. Thank you.